that, let's get on with the Sermon on the Mount. Now within the Sermon on the Mount, there's a series of lessons that we'll be looking at. And the Sermon on the Mount, of course, is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And you might be opening your Bibles to that particular passage. We'll be looking at different things within it and looking at other passages as well. But we'll be considering the Sermon on the Mount for the coming months. Now the purpose of the series is to help our understanding on the Sermon on the Mount and also to, to get a better grip on the principles that are taught within this sermon. It's also, to me, studying the Sermon on the Mount has always been extremely encouraging. And as we study it, I think you'll be encouraged by the principles that we can apply to our everyday life. Now as we begin our study, Let's notice then some, some general principles, and that's what we're going to do actually in the first three lessons. We're going to look at some general principles. The first two concerning the Sermon on the Mount. The third lesson will be some general principles leading up to the Beatitudes. And then we'll look at the Beatitudes individually. So we're going to get an overall picture of the sermon, and then we're going to go into details about most of the way through it, about verses all the way through. And we'll have a different sermon for each of the Beatitudes and the different things that the Beatitudes teach. But so please consider with me some reasons to study the Sermon on the Mount. Now the first reason that I wrote down is it is a great sermon preached by the greatest man. And now think about this also as well. Now, I've heard people say that Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. Well, I don't think that that's really true. Now, he was a wise man. He was wise in his age. There's no doubt about it. But where did Solomon get his wisdom? From God. You think Jesus might be wiser than Solomon? Hmm. Yeah. And so we have to be really careful. He was wisest among his age. No doubt about that. The scriptures clearly say, says that. But Solomon got his wisdom from God, and Jesus is God. So the fact is, Jesus would be wiser than Solomon. Well, if you have a wise man that's preaching, do you think you ought to listen? Well, yeah. When you have the greatest wise man to ever live, it's pretty clear that we ought to be listening to this great sermon. Now, sometimes, and it's because of this reason that... He, that is a great sermon preached by the greatest man, then sometimes the sermon is called the Constitution of Christianity. And I like that. Because when you look at this particular sermon and you look at all the things that are found within it, do you realize that most of this sermon is reiterated throughout the epistles? In fact, the one thing that has always amazed me in studying the book of 1 Peter, 1 and 2 Peter, is the number of allusions that Peter makes to this sermon. And really, if you go through the books of 1 and 2 Peter and start looking for those things, you'll be also amazed at the number of times Peter referred to lessons that he learned from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there, are, there is another sermon, and I say it's another sermon, that's found in the book of Luke. In fact, it's actually found in several places in the book of Luke. Now, it is not a, a, another account of this particular sermon. In fact, it actually, this says that he was on a mount, 
and that one he was in the plains. If you look at them and compare them, so there's not the same sermon, but it has much of the same content. And so we'll be looking at different things in different places at what Luke recorded in another sermon of Jesus. But the fact is we're going to stick with Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 for the most part. And those things then are reiterated in the, in the rest of the New Testament. Let's think about this for a second. The Beatitudes. It begins with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How many times do you find within the epistles different things that are said about being poor in spirit? Now, poor in spirit is at the very minimum is humility, but it's more than just humility. But how many times do you find within the epistles different instructions on humility? I mean, it's over and over. Let's think about those that are meek. How many times do you find the word meekness in the rest of the epistles? And how many times do you find different things about the merciful and being merciful one to another within the scriptures? I mean, both Old and New Testament, you find numerous. And I always think about the, uh, the book of Micah, the different things that Micah taught concerning being meek. And then think about, now that's chapter 5, and that's our first example. But then let's jump over to chapter 6. And the first part of chapter 6 is about benevolence. Do you find other instructions on benevolence that reiterates and drives home the point that Jesus made? And then his teaching on prayer. Well, you find numerous other examples of teaching on prayer throughout the scriptures. But then we go over to chapter 7. And we read about the narrow gate and the broad way. Well, do you find the narrow and broad ways mentioning in other places? And that how narrow the trip is on the way to heaven as far as the epistles are concerned and the way that we have to look at the scriptures? You see, it's all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. I just chose one example from each chapter but you clearly see the point. The second reason why I wrote down that we should study the Sermon Mount is it should be studied like any other passage of the Bible. Now, I found it interesting in a lot of places that I've lived, I've not heard much about the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, if it is the constitution of Christianity, shouldn't we study it like any other passage of scripture? Of course we do. Well, I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul to the young evangelist Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And then 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Well, the fact is, if all scripture is inspired of God, and we should read the scriptures, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4, and we are to study the scriptures, then we ought to study the Sermon on the Mount. It is such a basic thing. The Sermon on the Mount is a part of the scriptures. Then it must be reasoned that the Sermon on the Mount should be read 
and should be studied. A third reason why, it explains what it means to live like Jesus. Now, I find this statement, live like Jesus, kind of amazing. You know, people use it, and they use it really haphazardly, and they use it with emotions and different things like that, and they say, well, I'm just trying to live like Jesus, and here are every other word. It's a cuss word? Come on, give me a break. I mean, it just doesn't work that way, or they live the way they want to. They're not living like Jesus. Jesus put God first in their life, and oftentimes those who claim such, they're not putting God first in their life. They're putting other people before God, or they're putting themselves before God, which is usually the case. But living like Jesus is not some superficial spiritual life like the Pharisees had. You remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, concerning the Pharisees, Jesus said they were whited sepulchers, which indeed appear on the outside beautiful. Now you can, I mean, you can picture it in your mind. I mean, in our society, what do we bury people in? Beautiful caskets. In fact, if you look at the work of those caskets, especially the, the nice ones, I mean, it is absolutely amazing. Oh, what are they full of? Dead men's bones. And that's what Jesus talked about. And that's how Jesus talked about the righteousness of the Pharisees. They were on the outside like whited sepulchers, like a beautiful casket. But inside, they were like dead men's bones. That's Matthew 23 and verse 27. Well, living like Jesus is not also some mystical or emotional high without some sense of teaching. The Jews had a zeal for God, but it wasn't according to knowledge. That's what Paul declared in Romans 14. So that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for what does the scripture say? And that's what Jesus did. He lived according to the book. He lived according to the scriptures. And I've heard different ones say, well, I want to be like them. They must be so spiritual because they say hallelujah and they say, you know, praise God with every other word or they'll say something to the effect of, you know, peace be with you or how are you doing? And, and they'll say, well, blessed, you know, and they use words like that. But is that really what being spiritual is about? Now, it might come out sometimes that way, possibly, but, you know, being spiritual is much more than just that emotional uh, high that some people have. It is really living according to what the scriptures teach and living according to subject or not according to subjectivism, but objectivism. And living like Jesus, then, is to take the word of God seriously. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you compare the last part of chapter 5 and the different things that Jesus said, something to the effect of, and different, actually it's uh, six different times he said, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you, and Jesus then gave them the right interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, living like Jesus is living according to the right interpretation, not according to the wrong interpretation. In other words, it's to take the word of God seriously and authoritatively 
and to allow it to direct our lives. Then a fourth reason why we ought to study the Sermon on the Mount, if followed, a person will gain the promised blessings within it. Now, we could look at a number of different examples of this, and, and I've put down a few things, but I think the, the one thing that illustrates this principle or this particular lesson more than any other is the Beatitudes. I'm convinced that the world is looking for happiness, and I think you would agree that most people are looking for happiness. Now, there's always those that can't be happier unless they are sad. And you know people like that. I mean, you know, they're angry about life. And if they're not unhappy, they're not happy. <laughs> and even though that's a contradiction, but yet that's exactly how some people are. But most people are looking for being happy. They're looking, how can we be blessed? Well, the promised blessings of happiness are for those who live according to the Beatitudes. I remember and a preacher friend of mine, his brother was living in sin. And when the preacher friend then approached his brother who was raised by parents that were Christians and he knew better than the life that he was leading. And when the brother then, the preacher friend, approached his brother, his brother said, well, don't you think that God wants me to be happy? Well, God wants us to be happy, but God also knows what will bring happiness. It's not living according to yourself. It's not doing everything that you want to do will make you happy. But it's, you see, happiness comes by being poor in spirit, by being meek, or by mourning over sin and meekness and hungering and thirsting after righteousness and mercy and, and pureness and also then uh, being a peacemaker and also living uh, for Jesus even in light of persecution. You see, those things, Jesus said, are blessed. And now don't get me wrong, there are other beatitudes within Scripture than the ones that we have, those eight that we have. Which, by the way, I've challenged the sunshiners this evening to memorize the Beatitudes. But I really would like for them to memorize more than just the Beatitudes. Well, we'll be starting the Beatitudes, and I illustrated it with them. I mean, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's easy to memorize. We memorize it one week. Next week, you add to it the second beatitude, the third week, the fourth be the, the third week, the third beatitude, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of us can do it. And then let's not forget the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, I'm not going to challenge you beyond that, but we're only talking about 13 verses. That's all we're talking about. And someone says, oh, no, 13 verses. And that's what one of the kids did. Oh, no, that's a lot. But when you do it one at a time, now, I'm not going to ask them to, to, to say what I said to them, but what I said to them was, inch by inch is a cinch. Yard by yard is very hard. If we do it little tiny bit at a time, at the end, it'll be easy. But if we try to do it all at once, it'll be much more difficult. And that's what I used to say to the preacher students 
were in the school that I worked with. But the, the Beatitudes illustrate the point that we're making here, the promised blessings within it. You see, with being poor in spirit is having a part in the kingdom of heaven. With being those that, that are, are um, what was the second illustration I used? I think, uh, with they that mourn. Well, it's the promised blessing of being comforted. And blessed are they that, that are me. It is the promised blessing of inheriting the earth. And we'll talk about those promises as we get to them. But those promised blessings are only for those that do these things. And what I taught, and if you didn't know, I've been teaching the Sermon on the Mount to the young people, although we're going to be looking at it in some, some of the other places in more in depth than what we did with them. But, and then we're going to have some other lessons besides what they received. But it'll be a good review for them. But the fact is, we can't have the promises of the blessings of the Beatitudes without putting the Beatitudes in practice within in us. And what I mentioned to them is all the Beatitudes, not just one. You can't just pick and choose and expect the promised blessings to be upon us. We've got to take all the Beatitudes and apply them. So within these words of wisdom, the meaning of true and lasting happiness are given to us. And within these words of wisdom, then the true and lasting happiness unfolds within our lives. So let's practice then living like Jesus as he lived and as he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. A fourth reason, or rather a fifth reason we ought to practice and study the Sermon on the Mount is it gives us a glorious elaboration of the Lord's new commandment. Now I think most of us know the Lord's new commandment. If you will, turn your Bibles to John, the 13th chapter in verse 34. Now, the new commandment is mentioned in a couple of different places, but the first one is John 13, verse 34, which says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye should love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Now, the new commandment is to love one another. We have to recognize that. But... Didn't they have the commandment to love one another in the Old Testament? Well, of course they did. So why then is it a new commandment? Well, notice what Jesus said in that verse. As I have loved you. You see, the standard of that love is elevated and it's greater. We need to have the love for one another not just simply because we're brethren or not just simply because we're children of God, but we need to have that love one for another like Jesus' love for us. In other words, sacrificial. Now turn over to 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, he said, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye had, have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light shineth, or now shineth. So now John says it's an old commandment, and at the same time it's a new commandment. 
Well, it's an old commandment because from the very beginning, God expected his people to love one another. But it's a new commandment because we mold and shape it after the love that God has for us. Now, how do we love one another? Now, within the Sermon on the Mount, we find several different things stated how we should love one another. Now, let's go back to Matthew 5, and I've chose three examples in Matthew 5 within the Sermon on the Mount that shows this new commandment and helps us to understand how we can love one another. Now, first, it is more than like the Pharisees. In Matthew 5 and verse 20, Jesus said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, you see, the love the Pharisees had was much different than the love that Jesus has for us. And so it exceeded the righteousness of the Pharisees. It was different than the righteousness of the Pharisees. Not, not exceeded in the sense of, and, and oftentimes people will emphasize this particular point, and I think it's something worthy to emphasize. It's not exceeded in the sense of more righteousness, but exceeded in the sense of the type of righteousness. Our love for one another needs to be different than that of the Pharisees. It's not that kind of righteousness. It's not that kind of love. Now, love would be in the category of righteousness. And so we need to have a superior love than what they had. Then look at verse number 44. Jesus said, well, you really should start with verse 43. You've heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Now notice how Jesus changed what they had said. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. They're singular. But then Jesus said, you love your enemies. In other words, you don't have anybody that you don't love. You care for them and you show your care for them. And that's awfully hard to do when they're doing things against you. But he says, you do it. That's the kind of love that we have. Well, th let's think about this for a second because we need to pause. Do you think Jesus died only for those that are righteous or did he die for the world? Did he not die for those that drove the nails in his hands and his feet? Those that put a crown of thorn on his head? Did he not die for all of men, mankind? Did he love his enemies? Mm -hmm. He loved them much. And bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now I've always found that last statement. You pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Very intriguing and very difficult. When people abuse you and then we must pray for them, that's hard, but we must. And then another example, look at verse 46. Um, he said in verse 46, if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? Now, you know, the publicans, well, usually the term publican was associated with sinners. You've all heard of 
The publicans and sinners or sinners and publicans, either way, can be either or. But they were, they were basically the same thing. And what I understand about the publicans is that not all of them, no doubt, but many of them were like thugs. I mean, they were, they were crooks. They were evil people. They, in fact, one book said they're pretty much like the mafia. I mean, that's the kind of people that we're talking about. And who are we to love? Well, we can't love like the publicans. We must love like Jesus loved. Well, this is the true light. And in John, the ninth chapter in verse number five, Jesus said, as long as I am with you, I am the light of the world. Now, that's an interesting statement. Jesus said, I am the light of, with, of the world as long as I am, I am with you. But then within the Sermon on the Mount, he said, ye are the light of the world. A light that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Ye are the light of the world. Why? Because we must let our light so shine. Now, what light do you think that might be? Well, because of other places, light is oftentimes associated with love. When we love one another as Christ loved us, and we show love for other people, even though they might not agree with what we say, they might not agree with what we do, we, they might not agree in different things, but when we show love for other people, we're letting our light shine, and we must always remember that. A sixth reason why we ought to study the Sermon Mount is it will fulfill the disciples' responsibility to, to evangelize. Now, evangelize, the word literally means it, it means to, to speak the good message or good news, sometimes people will say, and that's what the word literally means. E-V, it comes from E-U in the uh, original language, and it means good or well, well like in, like in good. And angelizo is the second part of it, means message. And so it's the good message. And that's what we preach. Well, if we preach the Sermon on the Mount and we teach others about the Sermon on the Mount, then we're going to preach that good message and we're going to help others see that good message. Now, here's what I did when I was working in the, the sectarian world. People would come up to me, of course, I was preaching at that particular time, even though I was preaching part-time at that time, but people would say on Monday, well, how, how was your weekend? And you know what I would say? Well, it was a great weekend. I met with the Lord's church and this is the lesson I heard. <laughs> and then would teach a little bit about it. Well, let's think about that and make application here. We're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount in the next coming week, and more than likely, somebody's going to say, how's your week been? It's been a good week. I started the week in studying the Sermon on the Mount, and we learned about, and that we could talk about it. And now maybe, just maybe, maybe not, but just maybe it might open the door for something else. But you see how we can use that. Well, it will fulfill our responsibility to evangelize. Now, we I don't have to give the passages that talk about evangelism and talk about going to all the world and preaching the gospel. The world is looking for the true meaning of life. And there's no doubt about that. I mean, I just heard on, the, on a program that I was looking at 
and watching, and they were talking about the true meaning of life. What's the true meaning of life? Of course, they were coming from, from like most of the educational world does and most of public television. That's why actually it was on public television where I was watching this. And they were coming from a worldly standpoint, and they were looking at it from an evolutionary standpoint. But the fact is, from an evolutionary standpoint, there is no meaning of life. If it were nothing more than a concourse of atoms and we're nothing more than an accident, there's no meaning of life. But yet people are still looking for it. And clear back in the 60s, I remember people going out, and you remember the old movie Forrest Gump, and he was looking for, he was looking for himself and looking for a meaning of life. People look for that. And Jesus taught us within this marvelous sermon what the true meaning of life is. If people are looking for it and we have the answer, then should we not also share it with them? Obviously so. The Sermon on the Mount answers those questions. I remember standing, standing before a small group. I say a small group. It was probably a room Oh, larger than any classroom we have in this building and probably about the front third of this auditorium. And it was a classroom of college students. And somehow we had set up a, an opportunity to study with them. And three of us, we had different lessons and we were talking about this very thing. And I remember standing there and saying, you know, most of us are looking for some answers. And that the students kind of perked up. We're talking about college age students. They perked up and, and I said, you know, we're looking for answers of where we come from. What are we doing here? The meaning of life and where are we going? And I was really surprised at how intent they were to listen because people are looking for those things. The Sermon on the Mount can provide answers for us. Just think about it this way. If every member of the Lord's church, every member of the Lord's church applied the principles found within the Sermon on the Mount to their lives and truly lived by those principles, you think things would be different? Yeah. I mean, there'd be no fussing, no fighting, no, no bickering among ourselves. There'd be no divisions within the body of Christ would all be one of, of one accord and would put others first. You see, there would be a tremendous change within the Lord's body. Now, do you think, let me ask another question, do you think that'd be attraction for other people of the world? Yeah, no doubt. It would attract others. Well, the last reason that I have to study the Sermon on the Mount is Simply, it applies to me. I mean, you know, think about the different things within the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, ye are the salt of the earth. He applied it to you and me. He applied it to us. Ye are the light of the world. Now notice also the application that Jesus made to the disciples. Look at chapter 6 and verse 15. He said, but if ye forgive not, or if ye forgive men their trespasses, um, then 
uh, um, well, that's verse 14. But if ye forgive men their trespasses, uh, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, what Jesus did made a personal application of the principle that he taught within the sermon. And he made it and he applied it to you and to me. And I must ask myself, am I being forgiving like Jesus was forgiving? Now, forgiveness is certainly necessary. And I find it also interesting that there are people out in the world that will say, and in fact, one of the commentaries I read on the Sermon on the Mount, this particular uh, minister of the denomination, he said, there is nothing you can do to be saved. And then he turned around and read passages like that. Now, wait a second. Isn't that conditional on my forgiveness? Don't I have to be forgiving in order to have forgiveness? You see, we have to make that personal application. Now also think about the personal application of, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. Hmm. I can't seek it for you, and you can't seek it for me. It's a personal application. Or what about Matthew 7, verse 12, what we call the golden rule? Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You see, there's a personal application that we cannot ignore there. We've got to make that application. And then the final words of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I ask the kids oftentimes, what's the difference between the wise man and the foolish man? And they'll, they can tell you the answer to that question. It's not whether one built upon a rock or one built upon the sand. But Jesus gave us the answer. The person that hears the word of God and does them is like a wise man to build his house upon a rock. You see, the wise man is the person who hears and applies. You see the personal application? And that's where Jesus concluded the sermon. The foolish man is one who heard the word but did not make application. There is a personal application that we must make. Well, it is my desire for us during the coming months and probably a year for us to grow in knowledge of this marvelous sermon. But more importantly, I want us to do more than just grow in knowledge. I want us to study the sermon on our own and then also have the courage to apply what this sermon teaches, the beneficial principles found within this, this sermon. So this week, I'm going to challenge you, read the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I've read the Sermon on the Mount numerous times. Actually, I've read it in public at different times. And it takes you about, if you read it out loud publicly, it'll take you somewhere between 20 to 25 minutes. Hmm. Do you have 20 to 25 minutes this week to read it? Please take the time. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And please make the, have the courage to make the application found within these marvelous verses. This evening we do want to offer the invitation. There may be someone that would like to respond to it. 
And if we can help you in any way, then we invite you to come as together we stand and sing to encourage you.